Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians this morning. So there we go. Yeah, it is a little washed out. I might have to darken things a little bit. Jorge was right. He told me. He said it's probably a little light. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But uh, if you're having a hard time, I know it's difficult here on the periphery to see the the slides. And, of course, we're still always putting the slides up on kaya.live under the teaching section. And that way you can follow along on your phone if you're having a hard time staying with us. So that's available for you as well. We are going to be primarily in Acts chapter 18 today, oddly enough. Like, I thought we were done with Acts. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 18. So what I would do if I were you is I would have uh, a finger in 1 Corinthians and a finger in Acts chapter 8 as well. Um, So let's pray. I have, you know, intros are always difficult, right? It's always a little bit difficult, so we need the Holy Spirit to make sure that he, he sets things up for us in a way uh, that makes sense and, and, and allows us to understand where we're headed, right? Yeah, let's ask the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we love you, and we're grateful. We're grateful for the space. We're grateful for the opportunity to serve you. We're grateful to study a new book, and uh, Lord, 1 Corinthians has so much in store for us in terms of our own personal sanctification but also in terms of what it looks like uh, to use your word uh, to heal lives, uh, to heal a broken city, to heal people who struggle, young believers especially, who struggle with difficult concepts or maybe having the faith necessary to move forward. Uh, This is a great book for every counselor and leader in this ministry uh, to to learn, to capture, to understand so that they can help minister uh, the gospel, minister uh, your word uh, to the lives of those younger believers who are coming up in their faith. Uh, Lord, we, we do have a city uh, to, to save. And so, God, we're praying that this book would inspire in us a desire to reach a city that's hurting and dying and, 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 and quite literally going to hell. And so, Lord, change our hearts, change our lives, change our perspective. And, Lord, uh, cause us, provoke us to move forward in faith that we might reach Lord, the the parts of our city that many of us don't even dare to go to, uh, that we might go to those places. And and we can talk about Nairobi, and we can talk about these places, and and these are places that people need to go to. But we could just as easily say who will go to the Northeast, or who will go to Strawberry Hill, or who will go to Overland Park or Olathe, where people are convinced of their goodness, and they're convinced of their, their righteousness, and yet, and yet, Lord, they're so far from you. And they, they need people uh, with a proper perspective of who you are and your word to come to them and, and to, to help them, to come alongside of them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would show us as a ministry how to do that, and how, to, how to reach our city, how to win our city. But we're going we're gonna to need you uh, because just as we, we praised about, Lord, in our flesh there just dwelleth no good thing. And if we try to do it in the power of our flesh, we will fail. And so we must know you better. We must know you better. And we need you to lead us by the hand. 
And so we're asking for that. We pray it in the, in the name and the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. In 59 A.D., a letter arrived from Philippi to Corinth addressed from the Apostle Paul and a man named Sosthenes. Okay, now Sosthenes was a former chief ruler of the Corinthian synagogue and a highly respected elder among the Corinthian believers. And so God knew what he was doing. Obviously, he's used the Apostle Paul to write many of our epistles, right? And so it could have easily been written by just the Apostle Paul, but the Holy Spirit deemed it necessary and good to include Sosthenes in the process because he was so well-respected among the Corinthian people, all right? It was strategic in that way. And so as the letter arrived, people from the church would have gathered together in a central location for the letter to be read aloud, all right? And so you've got this small group of people. Uh, It's estimated that the church in Corinth would have been anywhere between 50 people and 200 people. We don't know exactly, all right? By, you know, in our world's estimation, that's that's not a very big church. That's what Midtown Baptist Temple looked like, you know, nine or ten years ago, okay? And we would say say to ourselves, well, there's churches, we know churches that are 1,500, 2,000 people, right? Right? But this would actually, compared to the churches in the first century that were sprouting up all over Asia Minor, this would have been a fairly large church. Okay, this would have been a big group of people. In a a city of 90,000 people, though, it was a very small group of people, right? Compared to the populace of the city that they ministered to, a group of 50 people would seem to be a drop in the bucket. Right, so so that's what we're dealing with here. Is, is you know, and at 200 people, you're a family, right? So if any of you were around in those early days of Midtown Baptist Temple, when we were about 200 people, I mean, that was still you knew everybody's name, and and there's people in here. I I don't even know some people's names in here, right? There's people in here I haven't even met yet, and that that happens as a church grows. But uh, this would have been very familial, and so the letter would have arrived, and people would have been very excited, and they would have said, okay, we're going to meet, we're going to gather together, and people would have, have run to that meeting place to sit down and to hear the letter read aloud. And among the crowd of gatherers would have been very, uh, uh, several familiar names, people that we, we have, have heard about from Acts. Okay, so at this meeting, we would have had the tent maker and, and business family, of Aquila and Priscilla. They would have been there. Okay, and so those would be names that we're all familiar with. These are former missionaries with Paul, right? These are, these are friends, dear friends of Paul. They would have been gathered there for that meeting. Titus Justice, who owned the house next door to the synagogue of Corinth, would have been there. This is actually his home, is where the church in Corinth was planted, was in his house. Crispus, the former ruler in the synagogue who walked away from his leadership position and confessed Christ right there in the very house of Titus Justice would have been there for the letter reading. Sosthenes, who we mentioned before, would have been there too, a man who had been beaten publicly for his faith and people would have seen him as a pillar in the church. He would have been there. Erastus would have been there. He was the treasurer of the city of Corinth. So you can imagine the prestige of his position. He would have been a man of great respect there in Corinth. And we would, we would know many of the names that would have been there. Chloe, Stephanus, Gaius, Tertius, 
Fortunatus, Achaeus, Quartus. These are all names that you hear about in the New Testament, people that are, are critical. These are people that, were, that are, are critical to the ministry of the gospel in Corinth. They would have been there. But there would also have been other people, names that we don't know, from varying classes of society. People of the laboring class, people who are construction workers and, and would have used their hands. These are, these are people who, like, like Aquila and Priscilla, who would have been using their hands to make money. There would have been slaves, people who are bond, bondsmen and bondwomen, and former slaves, people who had been set free, widows and impoverished people, former sex workers who'd left their occupation behind after hearing the story of Jesus Christ. This would have been a diverse congregation made up of people from all over Corinth society. And they would have been as culturally diverse as that city itself. They would have been gathered there that day, probably in a circle, probably sitting on the ground. The poor and the rich sitting side by side, ready to listen. Now, as I said, this was a young work, only seven or eight years old, at the point that they would have received this letter. And 50 to 200 people, you know, we call that a big church, but it was a small group. And they had a lot of work ahead of them, right? They had a lot of work. It would have been, you can imagine for a second, the work in Boston and how big that work seems to those people who are laboring in that city for the gospel. And this would have been a similar type of thing where people were, they knew, they knew that God wanted to use them, but the work seemed so impossible. It seemed so big. Now, Corinth was a port city, and it sat between Sparta, which was a military city. Maybe some of you have heard of the Spartans, right, from movies or whatever, okay? But Sparta was a military city, and it sat to the west. And then there was Athens, that we're familiar with this too. That was an academic city, and that sat to the east. Corinth was a great metropolis for its time, with a very, very diverse population. So, Let's talk a little bit about what Corinth was like. Corinth sat at the crossroads of several major highways, so it became a merchant city and had a thriving business sector, making money off of travelers and tradesmen and tourists from all over that area. So people were traveling there constantly. It was a hustling and bustling city, and it would have turned people over all the time. Imagine San Francisco or New York, those types of places where people are moving there for short periods of time to do business. They travel there for different reasons, and they leave. Corinth was home to several major universities and place of academics and philosophy. And you can imagine, uh, you know, like every major urban center in America, like Kansas City itself, there's colleges and there's people that are learning and growing. And they're hearing all the different theories uh, of their contemporary world. As a port city, it would have had an incredible number of sailors who were coming in and out of the city. And it was also home to several Roman garrisons, sailors and soldiers both. These are transient types of people. And so they would have been spending their free time looking for entertainment. And so with that said, the prostitution and the taverns in Corinth were of incredible number. All right? And so that leads us, in fact, to this idea that even worship in this pagan society was built around sex, all right? And so I don't know how familiar you are with Corinth, but but there was a, a place of worship devoted to Aphrodite that sat up on the hill in Corinth. And it's said, it's recorded during this time period that there was a thousand prostitutes working 
in this place of worship. And so people would have gone there, you know, under the guise, under the justification of worshiping Aphrodite. But people were coming from all over the world to go there and to use these prostitutes to get their kicks. And this was encouraged, right? I mean, if you think about a place like Las Vegas or Amsterdam or places where sex working is illegal or is, is legalized or it's just winked at or ignored, this would have been that on steroids, okay? And so you would have had a huge class of people, men and women, who were just prostitutes in the temple, and that's how they made their living. And so this was a place of wickedness. This was a place of brokenness. This was a place of confusion. And this was the backdrop. Their city, the place where a rose had sprung up among the thorns. And so here was this small people in a massive work, unsure of how they would move forward. Now keep in mind that the church that received this letter that day was a church who knew that they had some problems. They had some issues. They knew that. And they probably would not have been surprised if some of these issues had reached the ears of Paul. Issues of classicism and division. Issues of sexual immorality. Issues of church conduct and misapplying spiritual gifts. There were even some divisions in the church about the position and the perspective they, they ought to have of the Apostle Paul himself. And so although they would have been very excited to hear from the apostle, they would have also feared him. Like, I I don't know about you, but if Paul wrote me a letter, okay, addressed to Brandon, I would have reasons for rejoicing, but also reasons for concern. I mean, you've read these letters that Paul writes, right? Like in in some of the most lighthearted of his letters... There are strong words. There are strong words. And so they would have also felt the anxiety of knowing that they were, they were looking at, at getting probably some form of rebuke over the issues that they were facing. And so there was tension in the room. And although these people loved one another, they didn't know how to work together. And although they knew the mission, the mission was blurry and confusing and difficult and seemed impossible. And so although these people served together and learned together from Paul, they would have had issues in their midst. They had the, poten- had the potential of stifling the work ahead of them. Now, in order for us to best, best understand Paul's relationship to Corinth, I think it is imp- important for us to go back to Acts chapter 18, which is where the Apostle Paul first met the Corinthian people. So let's travel back several years to about 51 AD. And at this point in the story of Acts, the Apostle Paul and his team have successfully planted the very first church on the European continent. And so they would have seen some success, right? They're about three years into the work at this point. But the work thus far had not come easily. I don't know if you remember that. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 18... Paul had already been beaten for his faith. He had already been slandered. His name had already been dragged through the mud. There was hearsay and false false teaching all around him. He had been imprisoned. 
He'd survived earthquakes and come face to face with devils. It hadn't been easy. Not to mention, he'd been dealing with the Judaizers. Remember those guys? These are liars and heretics that preyed upon the people that Paul ministered to. And so Paul would come to a city. He would, he would go. He'd seek and, and see the lost come to Christ. He would disciple them for months or even years. And then as soon as he picked up to go to the next city, the Judaizers would swoop in and they would teach false teachings telling people that they had to earn the favor of God through going, by going back to the Old Testament and doing the works of the law. They were liars. They were sifters. And so every time Paul would leave a place, he knew that he was leaving these young believers in, in the hands of the wicked and the wolves. And so to add injury, uh, to add insult to injury, by the time we get to Acts 18, Paul has just experienced the rejection of the city of Athens. You remember, remember how heartbroken Paul was over the city of Athens? He went there by himself. Remember, he got away for a little bit from the rest of the team, and he went to Athens, and he traveled about the city, and he went and he preached at Mars Hill, where all of the academics would have been, the intellectuals, and he preached this very, very compelling message. And he spoke to reason and to logic and to spiritual things, and he was rejected almost completely. There was only a handful of people that came to know Christ in that city. For the most part, he faced rejection. And so on the heels of all of this trial, all the beatings, all the suffering, all the hearsay, he sets out across the Isthmus of Corinth, okay, which connected Athens to Corinth. I think there's a map that we've got. So here's the map. This is a, this is, this is a Google map. And um, I'm not too proud to say it. It probably took me 30 minutes to figure out how to do this. Okay. But I got it done. So here's Athens over here. This is where Paul would have been. So this is anywhere between 78 and 85 kilometers by, you know, by foot. He would have gone along the coastline, would have probably been the fastest route and the easiest route to take because it would have been less hilly. So this is the equivalent of something like 53 miles of walking. And he would have, it would have probably taken, it was common during that day, for a, a travel or a trip like that to take two or three days. And so here Paul is, he's walking across this isthmus. You guys remember that from geography, social studies, fourth grade? An isthmus, no? Okay. That is a, that's a thin line, right, that would have connected two pieces of land, right, surrounded by a body of water on either side, right? It was like a, a, a hairline bridge of land that one would have traveled across, right, just like this. You see that? See that right there? And so Paul would have, it would have, been two or three days of walking here, and in this time, he would have probably had lots of time to contemplate everything that had come before this. Now, you know how weak you are, don't you? I mean, you know how you don't want to even come to church when you've had a bad day, right? The boss was mean to me, you know. It was rough. I don't feel good. I have a tummy ache. Okay? I, don't, I can't go to Bible study tonight because I'm just so tired. Okay, you, you know the excuses that we make. And here is a man with the burden of many church plants on his mind. 
who's been beaten, who's been slandered, who's spoken face to face with devils. If anybody would have had an excuse to take a break, it would have been the Apostle Paul, and yet, and yet, he didn't. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why not? We all deserve a good vacation. There's nothing wrong with vacations. There's nothing wrong with taking a break. There's nothing wrong if you're not feeling well, not coming to prayer meeting or whatever it might be. But what we're talking about is a type of fortitude that many of us don't have. And the reason that we don't have that fortitude is because we don't have the right perspective. We don't have the perspective that Paul had. And so we can imagine the physical and mental fatigue that he was facing as he went on this walk. I mean, some of y'all, some of y'all won't walk down the street for groceries, right? And this dude is willing to travel something like 20 miles by foot a day to get to where he needs to go. I would say he was probably tougher than us. But as his feet carried him west, he eventually finds himself looking down on the coastal city of Corinth. Okay, so from a distance, I, I, it took me a little bit. I found a picture of what Corinth may have looked like from Paul's vantage point. It's not in my slides. It's in my Instagram story. <laughs> so I posted it there. You saw that? You saw it. It's there. Um, that would have been the perspective that Paul would have been looking down upon the city. Now, from a distance, any big met metropolitan city, right, uh, would, it looks beautiful from a distance. It looks exciting. The bigger the city, the bigger the buildings, the more people, the more beautiful it seems, the more things there are to do, the more entertaining it might be. And from a distance, Paul would have said to himself, wow, Corinth, what a, an incredible, big city. So much ministry to do there. Why not go to Corinth? Let's go, let's go. And so they traveled. And as they would have gotten closer to the city, as they would have encroached upon the city and, and upon closer investigation, they would have realized just how filthy and depraved this city was. As he approached the city under closer inspection, the shiny, wealthy, bustling city would morph before his very eyes to become a place of sinful vanity and a city that worshipped wickedness. And I think in that moment, if I was Paul, I think my heart would have dropped. I think I would have said, Not again. Do I have it in me to do this all over again? Do I have it in me to engage with a people who will only just reject me and reject the gospel time and time again? Do I have the strength to face the potential beatings, to face the potential imprisonments? Do I have it in me? And I want to tell you, 
that Paul had never seen a city as wicked as Corinth up to this point. It would have been the greatest challenge that he had ever faced. It would have seemed impossible on paper to reach this group of people. Now, I want to make a connection to our reality. Okay, so let me do that for a second because because this connection has to take place and we have to uncover this. If, If 1 Corinthians is going to mean anything to us as a church and as a group of missionaries to our city. Just as Paul saw that day, a city that was wicked, I believe that this is the same thing that we discover when we take the time to look across the landscape of our country and our city. Now, I'll I'll say this. I'm the biggest homer that you could ever find. I love Kansas City. I'm biased for Kansas City, okay? I love it. I think, I think that Kansas City is the greatest city on earth. I, I believe that. And I, I believe that because I, I, I love my neighborhoods. I love Midtown. I love Westport. I love that where I work, I can, I can just walk down the street and I can find food from all over the world. I love the fact that this is a big city with a small town feel. I love that people are kind. And that as a whole, they treat one another fairly gently. They're gracious with each other, at least in terms of their conduct. There are so many things about this city. When I I step way back and I look at it from afar, I say, this is is a wonderful city to be in. But then I take that walk. (laughs) And I inspect what I see. And I see, I, ju- I see the number of broken bottles in the street because someone was drinking and driving and, and, and they were having a good time and they're littering our streets with, with the leftover alcohol bottles. I mean, my front yard is the place that it seems that everybody wants to throw their empty bottle. I don't know what it is, right? But the number of, of butterscotch schnapps bottles... In my front yard, is nuts. There's some guy in my neighborhood, there has to be, that's drink. Do you know, you know what butterscotch scotch snops is? You know what that tastes like? It's disgusting. It's like an alcoholic version of Werther's Originals. <laughs> okay, that's the equivalent. They're, they're all over my yard. I don't get it. Um, and, and I go to the parks where my kids play. And I see needles, right? Or the, or the pornographic imagery you see on the billboards around 470 and I-70. Broken windows, graffiti. I mean, they just remodeled this building next door to our church. And not like one week later, some person is sowing mischief. Like, here's the thing about graffiti, Okay. Everybody, everybody thinks they like it, right? They're like, oh, yeah, graffiti is cool, so, you know. It's terrible, okay? These, these hack artists, they just go around because they didn't, they're, they're art institute flunkouts <laughs> that love weed and 40 ounces, right? And they just go around at like 2 o'clock in the morning when everyone's asleep and just mess everything up and then pass out underneath the bridge somewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, 
When we see property in our city defaced and broken windows, that's, you know, that's a sign of rebellion for the sake of rebellion, right? It's chaos for the sake of chaos. It's postmodernism at its height when it seems right to people to just destroy other people's property for no reason. The sounds of gunshots in the summer. If you guys live in the city, you know in the summertime what it's like at like midnight. I mean, I don't know who they're shooting at, but they're shooting. And the fanfare of pride flags, that just they're just everywhere now. Everywhere. And it speaks, it speaks to the fact that we don't even know how God made us. We can't even look at our own bodies and understand how God made us to be. But these things, listen, these things are just a simple reflection. They're just a reflection. They're just a manifestation. They're just a symptom of the worldviews and the philosophies that fill our city. It's just a glimpse. See, the truth is that we live in a world that celebrates sin. And we live in a city that celebrates sin. This is a world where the people in our community... The people that are your neighbors, the people that you go to school with, have never heard the gospel before. They've never stepped foot in a church. That ought to be incredible to us. The people could be 25 years old and no one's ever explained the gospel to them. It's a world with no absolute morals or values. It's a world where immediate gratification and excess is normalized. Like, in this moment, in 2022, we are are in a place where it's literally okay to order food into your house and watch porn all night long. To binge TV, to see whatever you want to see. Like, it's literally, it is okay to look at anything you want to look at. In the privacy of your home, Hey, you do whatever you need to do. That's the world. Anything you want at the push of a button. It's a world where politics and power are leveraged for personal gain. It's a world where people are deluded into believing they can escape objective truth by simply obeying the subjective truth of self. Well, I feel, or this is my truth. You can't win in a world like that. How do you explain to a person what truth is when they say what the, the, their reality and their truth is whatever they want it to be? That no one or anything outside of them can tell them what to do or to believe or to think. That every moment and every thought is just a justification of the next sin. And I don't know if you know this, maybe it's because you're young, but 50 years ago, the world wasn't that way. Something's happening. Satan is getting his way. He's getting what he wants. He's winning. He's winning. He's winning in your neighborhood. He's winning in your classroom. And the work seems impossible. 
We don't even know how to take steps forward sometimes. This is a world where even those who claim to be Christian or evangelical or Bible believers do just as the Judaizers did. And they actively work to undermine the Bible and the Great Commission at every turn. Where people who call themselves Christians point at Christians like us and they say, well, what you are saying of the Bible says is not what the Bible, that's not what I want to believe. You might think, yo, you're a literalist. You're a biblical literalist. Oh, I get it. You're a dispensationalist. Oh, I get it. I get it. I know you. You read a KJV. I know the type of Christian that you are. And then they, they actively work to undermine the gospel witness that we have in our very city. Even Christians are segregated because they're not willing to believe the simplicity of the word of God. That's where we live. And then we must consider ourselves. The church in Kansas City, Midtown Baptist Temple, a people who honestly want to have an impact on the world, and yet, and yet, our hearts are exhausted. And we see the world, and we see missions, and we hear about Nairobi, and we hear about Boston, and we hear about Dallas, and we hear about those things, and those things are great for little trips here and there. But we don't have the guts to go across the street and share the gospel in our own neighborhood. And we look at the work before us, the years of ministry ahead of us. You know, being a disciple doesn't seem so appealing. I mean, okay, put yourself in my shoes. I know there's very few people in this room as old as me. But if, if I'm honest, and I did the numbers, I crunched the numbers, and I think about what it was like in 2005 when we first came here, and what, how our city has changed, right? What was the, what's the impact that, that, that my ministry or the ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple has had on this city? If I crunched the numbers, it would probably be disheartening. Because as a whole, I don't think Kansas City's headed the right direction. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see Jesus Christ on the mayoral ballot. I don't see people running to Christ and wanting to know him. I don't see, if I look at it from that vantage point, it's disheartening. And I think, I couldn't be Paul. But then I look at this room. And I think, I start to think that God can do the impossible.
And I think, I think God can use us. But we've got problems. Like, like we've, we've got, Kyle, we've got problems that we have to face. We've got sin issues. Now, now listen to me. When I say sin issues, I don't even mean sins of commission. Okay, I'm, I'm not, like, I know we've got those. I know we've got things in our ministry, like in our personal lives, where we, we do things actively against God and we disobey him on a daily basis. We face sins. And some of us have sin issues which means we've got some sort of sin that's an addiction in our life and we can't seem to shake it. I know that that's happening. And I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the sin of omission. The sin, the sin of seeing what God wants us to do and instead of doing it, taking a seat, sitting on our hands, twiddling our thumbs and distracting ourselves with the things of this world. And part of the problem that we have in Kaya is that our glass is already half full of worldly things. And so whatever God wants to pour into us or whatever God wants to use us to do, we're so quick to be exhausted because we're so preoccupied with the sins that surround us. We're so preoccupied and distracted with other things. So we look at Kansas City and we say, we say to ourselves, it just seems so difficult. It seems impossible. And by the time I'm 40, what kind of impact will I really have on this city? What will have God really done through me? I mean, I've been in ministry two or three years and I'm already tired. I've already been hurt. See, there's, there's a question that we need to ask ourselves. In fact, there's two questions. And so if you're writing things down, the question for t- today is this. Do we see the need? Do we see the need in our city? When you look around, or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the need? Like when we come together like this, man, it feels so good. Bible study feels good. Prayer meeting, it feels so good. It feels so good to be with the believers. It feels so good to be with people who are like you, who think like you, who do like you do. It's easy. And it puts a glossy veneer on our lives. And we, we forget to take the time to look at the grimy, nasty, vain city that we live in and remind ourselves that there's a lot of work to do. Do you see the need? Just like Paul, as he approached Corinth, he saw a need. And the next question is, how will we respond? How will we respond to the needs that we see? See, as far as I can tell, the minister who sits at 40th and Walnut, that's you and me, has two options. Two options. The first one is to retreat from your circumstances. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean that you're going to you're going to, you know, quit ministry and go home and play video games for the rest of your life or pursue that career that you're after and just I'm not saying that. You know, retreat, retreat can look a lot of different ways. 
What I mean by retreat is burying your head in the sand. To hide your face from the reality of our world. To forget that you have a job. To forget the Great Commission. To forget that this is just hard. Just to forget all that stuff. And just follow the motions. I mean, listen, you can look like a really good minister right here. You could do your hospitality thing. You could do your kid town thing. You can do the. You could serve in ministry. You can do all these things, and you could do your thing, and forget the vocation that you were called to. And you can look the part, and you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. And you can retreat right in the midst of this ministry. You can do that. And many of us are right there. But be warned, if you retreat, you are certain to eventually succumb to nominal Christianity. And you will be just another church-going American Christian doing your thing. You know, we get, you know what? We, we often get accused of something that I think is very, very funny. As a ministry, we often get accused of being kind of radical. Oh, that discipleship stuff. You know, that, that, sounds, like, that sounds like a little much. You know? You know, God's so gracious and so good. Discipleship doesn't have to be so radical. Oh, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I appreciate your love for the word, brother. I appreciate that you love the book so much. But man, you got to think realistically. You can't take things so literal. I mean, Paul and, you know, the disciples, you know, that was, that was 2,000 years ago they were living that way. The church is different. It's different now. Man, y'all listen to me. We aren't radical enough. Like if I hear that accusation a hundred more times, I'll be happy. Because we can't be like We can't be like our flesh wants us to be. We can't can't sin the sin of omission. We've got to do the thing that God's called us to do. What else will we do? Like, what else will we, what, what will we busy ourselves with? I mean, once you have the light, once you know, once you know what discipleship is, y'all, you're screwed. You can't go back. You can't go back. Once you understand what church planting is and what missions really is, that it's not just going on vacation with your church to some place to get pictures with the impoverished peoples of the world. Like once you get, 
that we're not in the business of building wells or throwing our money at playgrounds in Guatemala, that God has called us to the mission, and that can look a million different ways, but there are people that are dying and going to hell, and it's our responsibility to go meet them and to know their name and to preach the gospel to them face to face. That's what that is. You can't go back. There's no going back. But people try. And you can be right here in the midst of the radical. And you can just do your thing and retreat. But eventually you're going to succumb to the way of the world and you're going to look like every other person that calls themselves Christian in America. So that's one option. If you don't know, that's the crummy option. That is not the one I'm advocating for. See, the other option is to rise to the occasion. It's to rise to the occasion. And we've got Paul as our example in Acts chapter 18. Acts 18.1 says, after these things, after these things, after rejection in Athens, after the beatings, after the slanderings, after the tiredness, after the worn out rejection over and over and over and over and over again, the difficulty of ministry, the burden of the churches. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. So when Paul approached Corinth, sure, he saw the sin. He saw the wickedness. But he also saw the potential for God's grace to be poured out. And in fact, I would argue, based on what we read, that it may have been the only thing he saw. And I know that from Romans chapter 5 and the way that he talks there in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so when we look at Kansas City and we say, well, sin is abounding everywhere we go. I see it everywhere. I see it in the streets. How could I possibly engage it? It seems so big. Ah, 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 you've forgotten that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And in fact, the depravity of our city should only be evidence that God wants to have his grace and his fame even that much more abounding. That that much more his name could be glorified in the city. That there's that much more potential for him to be known and for his grace to abound. There is no person, there is no city too far gone to save. None. None in the world. None. You think about some of these places in our world where Islam has just taken over by force. And we think to ourselves, man, how is God going to get in there? You can't preach, you can't, even, you can't even talk about Jesus publicly in places like Saudi Arabia. You can't do it. In fact, if you show up white, you're already, you're, like you're already in trouble. They're just going to assume that you're up to no good. How, how, how could we possibly, oh, wait a second. God is bigger than your imagination. God is bigger than your thoughts. And just because Satan has a foothold, 
Job 49 says, Has, Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? You silence your imagination and the vanity of your thoughts, and you believe. Believe. Believe that God can reach this city. See, not only was Paul convinced that God could save the city, but God wanted to use weak and troubled people to meet the need. Listen to Paul's belief on the matter when he writes to the church in Corinth in the second letter. Okay, In 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the church. Listen to what he says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You know, earthen vessels, bodies made of dirt. You understand? When we die, we turn to dust. God breathed into a pile of dirt life. That's what we are. But we have a treasure in these earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. See, listen, just like Paul, just like Paul, we are troubled on every side. Look around. Walk down the street. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. I'm, per, I'm perplexed. I'm, I, some of the things that I hear from people in this world, I'm perplexed. It's befuddling to hear people talk from their postmodern ideals. It's, it's confusing to hear someone talk about gender. It's confusing. It does not make sense. But not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Of course Kansas City is a big city. Of course the work is too big for you. Of course you'll be maligned and mistreated. Of course. Of course you're going to be exhausted and tired. And you might die early. But faith says... God can use me. And God can use this church to manifest his son, Jesus Christ, in Kansas City and in Boston and in Tampa and in Dallas. All over the world. So let's read Acts chapter 18. Let's walk through it. And let's see what God did through Paul to reach the city of Corinth. And just as he's exhausted, and just as it seems like he ought to take a break, here we have him. Paul believed God was big enough to do anything. Do you? Do you believe that? 
Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit. Are you? Are you pressed in the spirit for Kansas City? And testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they oppose themselves, which they will, they will oppose themselves. They will reject you. They will say no. And when they blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into... See, he wasn't done. You understand? He wasn't done. He went from people group to people group. He didn't stop. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice. That was a good move. One that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Did you hear what I heard? Did you hear God's message to Paul? Don't quit. Don't relent. I have much People in this city. Now, I hope you know what that means. That doesn't mean that there's a lot of Christians hiding out. No, 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 no. What God's talking about is the potential to see change in that city for the, the, the name of Jesus Christ. What God can foresee that no man can foresee what Paul couldn't see with his earthly eyes when he looked out on his city and he saw Corinth for what it was, the thing he couldn't see is that there were many people there yet to be saved, that God had an ordained meeting that he had set up, that he had given to Paul, that there were people that needed to hear the gospel that had not heard it yet, and that when they heard it, they would believe. But we have to see it. And we have to see it for what it really is. It's God's work. It's God's plan. It's God's power. And he wants to use an earthen vessel just like you to magnify his glory, to take his treasure in conversation and in going As we prepare to close 
the message today, I want, to, I want us to ask ourselves or consider a question. Perhaps you've seen it on the slide. Okay, such a time as this, right? You saw it on the slide. As we prepare to close today, I want us to consider Esther. And in the story of Esther, just after the, the king, uh, King Xerxes, I don't know, you, you know this story? Some of you do, some of you don't. Esther's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story of hope, actually. But, but just as the king had proclaimed a genocide over the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, like literally, had, had signed into place a law that all the Jewish people were to be killed. Just as that happened, Esther's uncle, Esther was the, the queen of the king, Esther's uncle and foster parent gives her the advice that actually sets her free for the work, the work that was ahead of her, the work to save the people. And I believe it's a word for our generation. And I believe it's a word for us today in Kaya. It's a word for us. In Esther chapter 413, Mordecai, her uncle, commanded to answer Esther, think not, this is the advice, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou alt so don't, don't think that you're going to be able to hide and escape the matter that's set before you. We can't just push it underneath the rug. This is a big deal, Esther. And you're the one. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their, their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. God will do his work despite you. But what I want to tell you is that God wants to use you. Yeah, God's going to get, his, get what he wants to get done done. He is going to save the Jewish people. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. But Esther, listen to me. You sit on the cusp of God using you. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And I have to say that God is very, very specific in how he made you. You know, have you ever thought about it? Like you could have been born at any time in any place. You could have been born of a different ethnicity, a different era. could have been a completely different world. If I had my preference... I would like to have been a cowboy. <laughs> but I, don't, I didn't get to choose. Okay? See, God knew what he was doing when he put me here now. He knew that. And he knew for you, too. And he didn't put you here and now in 2022 in Kansas City in a postmodern world. He didn't put you here so that you could say to yourself, I'm so thankful for my salvation, I'm going to kick it now. No, what he wants you to understand is that you were born specifically for the work set before you in Kansas City. In this community, on your campuses, in your workplace, to your family, to your neighborhood, you were born for this. 
It's your destiny. And that sounds real grandiose, and it makes, it makes for great reading in the book of Esther, but I want to tell you right now, it is true for you. And so when you see the impossible before you, you say to yourself, God, let your grace abound everywhere that I go. Use me to win this city, to see it delivered from its depravity, to see it delivered from the sin. And as we explore Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this series is going to have an impact on all of us who desire to be mission-minded. For all of those of us who desire to share the gospel or lead Bible study or be a part of a church plant, 1 Corinthians is the book you need to get down in your life so that you can be the minister that you're supposed to be. See, 1 Corinthians is a manual for cross-cultural ministry and how to minister in a postmodern world. It's perfect. Now, as we close today, I, I want to read this verse to you, and, it, and it's in the closing of the letter. that This is the only verse in all the 1 Corinthians that we're going to be in today. That's how I do, okay? I like to mix it up. This is the only verse, and it's at the very end. And, and you guys know how sometimes when Paul writes a letter, at the end, he just throws a lot of stuff in. It's like he ran out of time or parchment or something. He's like, I can see that I'm running out of parchment. So he just goes to town, and he lays, like, really fast charges and, and, and makes all the things he needs to make known. He makes them known quickly there at the end. And among this, these litter, this litter of charges at the end, he has a word that's specifically for that little church in Corinth. And I think it's something that we need to consider and observe as we move forward in the book. And it's this, verse 13. Watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. And be strong. Be strong. Quit you like men. Put off the flesh. Put off your logic. Put off your reasoning and excuses. Be full of faith and be strong. I want to invite the worship team up. And we're going to close in worship. But as we do, as we always do, there is an invitation. Okay, and the invitation is this. If you've forgotten that God wants to use you in this city... Come forward and grab a hold of someone and proclaim your desire to reach the lost around you. Okay? Do that. But the other invitation that I want to make today is that there's some of you who, when we described Corinth, we were actually describing your life. And where from a distance, things seem to be good, things seem to be okay. But if we were to get a, gl a glimpse of your heart, we would recognize that it's, that it's dirty, that it's filthy, that there's something that's not right. And maybe that's, maybe that's the issue of salvation. Like, like uh, it's worth me painting this picture for you one more time. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
gave up his throne to come to earth to live a perfect life and be a sacrifice for your sin. And the filth that fills your life, you know it does. No one needs to convince you that you're a sinner. You know it. And it's written on your heart. It's a curse. Jesus Christ came and bled. He gave his own blood. He gave his life to wash that sin away. And at the point that you believe and call on him and you say, God, forgive me of my sin. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I love you. Save me. At the point that you make that proclamation clear, he washes that sin away from your life forever. And you stand clean eternally. And some of you need to come forward and you need to get clean. You need to get clean. You need to get right for the very first time before the Lord. Do not wait. And you know, if it's eating at you, you know. If it's tearing at your heart, you know. You know. It's time. It's such a time as this. But others of us, we're believers, and it's funny. It's like we've got clean clothes on, and we're like, it's like we go back to the world, and we even though we can't get dirty again, it's like we just like to play in the mud. And you, need, and you are just like Corinth. You're covered in graffiti. And you're, you're covered with, with the, 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 the residual effects of, of porn addiction and, and late night alcoholism that no one knows about. And you're tampering with things and you're doing things that that you think no one can see, but upon closer inspection, it's written all over you. And if you feel that, and you know that to be true in your heart and your life, it's time to sit down with somebody and repent before the Lord. And so as we go into this season of worship, please get it right. Please, there are, there are going to be leaders standing at the back and at the front. And just get up, whatever you feel comfortable with, just get up, grab a hold of somebody and say, will you pray with me? Don't wait. There's a world out there that needs us. It needs us to be a light. We can't wait on any of these things. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I struggle to believe that you can do the impossible. That's my confession. And there are, there are people that I think are too far gone. And there, there are times I look at our city and I think, man, what can a church like Midtown do here? The work is so big, it seems so impossible. And yet, Lord, I'm reminded from your word that you can do the impossible. And you can reach with your strong arm and with the thundering of your voice, you can reach and deliver any person. And so, God, I pray that you would extend that arm and you would speak with that voice and you would rumble this city and you would pave a path for every minister in this room to go to the lost and to see them saved. Help us, Lord. We are a people just like Paul, of, of, of stumbling lips that struggle to speak, that struggle to know. Lord, help us. Use these earthen vessels to carry your treasure all over this world, and especially to this city. Please, God. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.